Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. A front row seat to history. It's a phrase you hear every now and then, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like it's used a little too much. Watching the Saints win the Super Bowl or the Cubs win the World Series qualifies on one level, but if you're watching it with millions of other people on a screen, does it really count? If, however, you're sitting with just a handful of journalists in a tiny courtroom, in a small town, in a remote county of a rural state, and yet the conviction that is handed down in that courtroom reverberates around the world. Well, yeah, when Michael DeWitt uses the phrase in our conversation this and next week, that's exactly what it is. How else do I say this? Michael DeWitt Jr., author, journalist, and editor of the Hampton County Guardian in Hampton County, South Carolina, has been covering the Alex Murdoch trial not just for weeks, not just for months, but for decades. And he was in the courtroom from beginning to end. We could not be more thrilled to have Michael join us as he takes us inside the chamber to share his front row seat to history. Buckle up, it's going to be quite a ride. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We know that you have been a very busy man these last two months. Are you recovered from all your reporting? I am as recovered as I'm going to be, and and but w- no, we're not through reporting, uh, not by a long sight. Yeah, I mean, we were saying off air that you have been drinking from a fire hose almost non-stop. What was that like? Well, like you say, it's been it's been a a, a six week uh, experience. Um, you know, drinking from the fire hose. I may not remember the first few sips as uh, as well as I do those final swallows, but it's it's definitely been a uh an experience that um that my county, my community and uh the people who live here uh we won't we won't get that taste out of our mouth for quite some time. Well, we've got plenty to cover um and we are just so excited to have you because um, I mean, I it's rare that you get this kind of inside the courtroom perspective. Um so we are just thrilled. So before we dive into the trial, uh what I'd like to do is I'd love for you to introduce uh, yourself to our listeners a little bit. We'd love to hear a bit about your background. Now, you are a native of South Carolina and a native of the Low Country, and you have observed its politics and its dramas for pretty much the whole of your career, haven't you? That's right. I was born and raised right here in Hampton County. Um, never lived anywhere else. I went to school with members of the Murdoch family. Uh, Alex Murdoch's mother taught me in middle school, taught me uh, English um, English and, and reading or American literature or whatever it was at the time. I covered uh, I covered the Murdochs in the in the courtroom. I covered uh, Libby Murdoch as a school board member. So I've been uh, part of this community and part of the local newspaper here for almost 20 years. Uh, lived in the community here all, all 50 years of my life, and it's uh, been a quiet place up until recently. <laughs> in, in from which it went from uh, zero to 60 in about a hot minute, didn't it? 
Absolutely. Now, you are the author of two previous books that, that I could count. You wrote a book about Hampton County um, in the Images of America series published by History Press. And then you also wrote a book called, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and warn our listeners uh, to cover their children's ears if they're nearby, Saying Grace Over Edible Underwear. Tell us about this book. <laughs> well, it's it's... I am a Southern storyteller, so I may not answer your quest- your questions quickly. I may answer them with a story. But before all of this, I was uh, the editor of the paper, and I was more of an outdoor writer and a Southern humor writer. I, I, I write, or I was writing for South Carolina Wildlife Magazine. I was writing for Sporting Classics uh, Magazine, which is more of an international uh, hunting and fishing magazine. But my love was other than the outdoors and outdoor writing was writing you know southern lifestyle southern humor and i wrote an award-winning uh humor column that appeared in the guardian almost every week you know about just down home life on the farm living in the south and one of the columns i wrote uh i took the title of that and 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 turned it into a a, a collection of, of humor columns that i published but here in the South, we're so, uh, you know, we're so religion and, and, and is so ingrained in, in our upbringing. You know, we're all uh, Baptist or back row Baptist and we're so religious that, uh, we'll, we'll say grace even before we, we eat some edible underwear. That's just how, you know, the, the, the irony there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so maybe not that title. I've, I've been advised since then by my family to maybe tone down the titles of my next books a little bit, but I just found it very funny. Tell us about this. Your new book is in line to a certain degree with your previous concerns. Your your new book is called Wicked Hampton County, uh, which contains the story of the Murdochs in a sort of generational sense, but it also contains quite a bit more than just the Murdochs. You have cases from all throughout Hampton County's history, and they they really are some crackers in there. I mean, there really are some absolute gems of of um, sort of misfits and escapades, and you know, folks getting into all sorts of trouble. You know, down there. How did this particular book come about? I've actually, in the, over the past year, year and a half, I've been writing two books with the same research effort. I started out uh, years ago before the Murdoch murders, even before the boat crash. After I finished uh, Images of America, I wanted to do a, I was going to call it the dark history of Hampton County. I wanted to do, as opposed to uh, more of a photo history, I wanted to do a history and focus on some of the the old crimes, the, 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 the old mischief that went on over the years. And I'd been researching this for quite some time. Uh, my wife used to work at the newspaper with me. And, uh, you know, I had her doing some research in the archives. I'd go to the museum. She'd go to the library. And this book was mm, a little over halfway finished when all this Murdoch stuff happened. And so I kind of amped things up a little bit with my research. And in the process, I researched the Murdoch family, the Murdoch legal dynasty going back over a hundred years. So I've written two books, <coughs> excuse me, I've written two books, Fall of the House of Murdoch, 
will be uh, published in June of this year, and it's by the Evening uh, Evening Post Press, Evening Post Books. And that is strictly a history of the Murdoch dynasty, dynasty from the Confederacy to the present, including the trial and Alex Murdoch's uh, scandal and all that. But in the process of, of doing that book, I finished the Dark Hampton County book, and I'm uh, very thankful History Press is publishing it as part of their Wicked series, so Wicked Hampton County. And it contains a condensed version of the Murdoch history, but it also goes back to the days of the Native Americans, to the days of Reconstruction. And I, I really, I, I deeply love uh, this book. It, it It's not a, a feel-good, obviously. It's not a warm and fuzzy type of book. But I tried to put it in context. Uh, there's a chapter at the end where I talk about modern Hampton County and how we've grown and changed and how one small town in America overcame generations of racism and, and ignorance. And and so I tried to put it in a good context, but it is a well-researched, uh, well-documented history of our county. It just focuses on the misdeeds, you know, libraries are filled with books of great deeds and great accomplishments. And this is a, a story of great misdeeds and how one small town in America overcame them. Which we love. And one of the arguments that you make, which I thought was so interesting, is that, you know, we often think of the Wild West in these sort of cliched and stereotypical terms, um, you know, the lawlessness and uh, fights breaking out in the streets and uh, vendettas, you know, leading to murders and kind of people taking, you know, justice in their own hands and so forth. And you write that the stereotypical aspects of the Wild West that we think of are actually more applicable to the wild southeast of South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> and that everything you're looking for out there in Tombstone, you are going to find right here in the low country. Yeah, before the, the the Wild West, we had the Wild East. I mean, the towns here were dusty streets, horses and livestock roamed, uh, un, unchecked, unaccounted for. Uh, you might be walking to the local general store uh, with your kids or your, your wife or your mother, and gunshots might ring out. There'd be a, a, a fight, a, you know, a, a duel or just, you know, somebody throwing pistols. Uh, right on on Main Street, there have been killings and and lynchings right at the county courthouse. It was very much a wild, <clears throat> wild historical landscape. Well, let me ask you this: Where did you find these particular cases, and can you tell us about maybe just one or two of your particular favorites? I inherited a lot of research as editor of the paper. I inherited all the historical research that previous editors had have done before me. That was a starting point. There was a great editor named Martha B. Anderson who wrote for the state paper at one time. She was invited to the White House as a guest of President Jimmy Carter, I believe, um, and as a part of the press corps. She did a 100-year centennial. When the, when the county was 100 years old or the newspaper was 100 years old, she did a historical edition of the paper, and I have those archives. And then the very first year I started with the paper, 2004, it was our 125th uh, 
let me get this right. Martha B. did a 100th edition for the 100th year of our county. And going back to when it was uh, Prince William Parish, when it, before it became Hampton County. And then when I started, we did a 125th anniversary edition of the newspaper itself. And my publisher, I was just one of the staff writers at the time before I became editor. And I, um, my publisher did most of the research and I inherited that research. Then the rest of it was going to, we've been very good about saving the guardians for, uh, over 143 years. We have them on microfilm. We have them hard copies that are yellow and falling apart, but they're in the county museum. So I spent months going through microfilm, going through uh, old paper archives. I bought every local history book I could find, and I just started putting all of these stories together. You know, there is no substitute for that kind of butt-in-chair research. And I know the historians who are out there listening to us... (laughs) right now, are nodding their heads in agreement, you know, uh, there is just no substitute. You got to put in the time, you got to put in the hours, you got to, you got to have the bad days where you don't find dirt. And then you got to find those days, you know, where you dig up a diamond that just, you get both kinds and you you just got to show up. That's right. Yeah. It's not like, uh, Indiana Jones. You're, you know, the, the history is usually in a, in a very old, dark, dimly lit place and uh that's where you gotta just dig through it there you go well can you tell us before we start talking about the murdochs in detail can you just tell us maybe about one of your favorite cases from this particular uh adventure this particular compendium that you have compiled sure and and i forgot to mention that wicked hampton county is uh coming out on may 29th i think they're already taking pre-orders out there i've heard dozens of people have already bought the book and that's amazing. It's great. I, I, there's so much. It's hard to, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the Murdoch separately. Um, I tried to go down some side trails, if you will, when I got to the Murdoch dynasty, because as solicitors, they put away a lot of really interesting but really bad people. Uh, there were um, there was a young man that killed his parents back in the 50s. There was a Back in the 40s, there was a man who murdered his family with a baseball bat. Horrible stuff, but it was a man named Randolph Murdoch, whether it be senior, junior, or the third. It was a man named Randolph Murdoch who was the solicitor, prosecutor, who put them away. So I go into some side roads in both books, but to me, Wicked Hampton County, I think the moonshining stuff and the civil rights stuff, uh, I'm kind of torn between the two. Uh... We had to have students and, and activists from the north, like Notre Dame uh, college students, come down to help locals uh, uh, register to vote. And there's a whole lot of interest and stuff here. The, the Klan was very much active here in, in our area for decades. But to single out one, it would have to be the moonshine. We used to have uh, moonshiners in every swamp pole of this county. Uh, my family, my family was known for, for their moonshine and uh, and uh, hog rustling, which that is a whole nother story there. But uh, the moonshiners were active. There was a town in, in Hampton County or an area in the swamp they used to call Liquorville. <laughs> Wait, just, just make sure we got that right. There was a town called Liquorville, you Let, said. <laughs> no, it, it, 
It wasn't uh, that wasn't the official name of the town. It was a collection of houses right on the edge of the swamp. Um, sure. But that area was called Liquorville, and one of those my favorite stories when Sled really became an active state police agency, and they started helping local law enforcement look for moonshiners. They'd put airplanes in the air and fly over the swamp, look for steam or smoke or anything coming out of a of a dense forest area near waterways. And so the moonshiners got slick. Uh, one moonshiner put a, a liquor still in his bedroom. I don't know how he didn't blow himself up, but he had a still in his bedroom in the house. And then one moonshiner, one set of moonshiners, built an apparatus very much like a submarine. And it was half in the water of the swamp and half above the water. And they were cranking out uh, hundreds of gallons of, of bootleg hooch. They called it, the, the newspaper article I found called it swamp juice. There you go. Um, so they were basically buried in a submarine in the swamp, cranking out swamp juice where the sled airplanes in the 40s and 50s couldn't see them. And uh, law enforcement had to paddle in there by boat. And, and they arrested them, shut the whole thing down. But one of the bootleggers, this is in January or November, it was cold. One of the bootleggers was brave enough to jump in the swamp and swim away. And he, and he got away because the cops, it was too cold for the cops to swim after him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, are we sure? What was, uh, did he show back up on scene or was his body ever found, you know, uh, I mean, swimming through icy river in, in December, January, um, you know, you better be quick, son, <laughs> right? and, get, and get to shore as fast as you can. Well, that was an unanswered question for me. The new, I couldn't find any more newspaper articles that his last name was Tootin and I couldn't find any newspaper articles that told me if he was ever apprehended or if he died. And I posted a little teaser on Facebook about that story and promoting the book. And one of his descendants commented and said, that's my uncle. And no uh, way. And she wasn't upset. She was just tickled pink that because that, uh, she had fond memories of her moonshining ancestors. And she was like, I'll have to tell you some stories sometime. I'm like, absolutely. So, Come on down to the newsroom, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think Mr. Tootin uh, survived, and I think he made a lot more shine before he died. There you go. Well, I have to ask a, a strictly uh, professional question here. Uh, the, the shine that your family made, how was it? Did you ever get to try any? That was a little before my time. The last, uh, my father uh, would remember, he told me a story. There was a liquor still and the property right next door, our Uncle Doc was, uh, we don't know if he, and I, I'm not going to say his last name, I don't want the family to disown me, but we don't know if Uncle Doc made the shine or if he just let somebody do it on his property down by the swamp. But my grandfather and my dad were back in a, in a field, plowing the field with, with one of the old-timey Ford tractors or Cub tractors or whatever they had, and... Uh, my father's walking around behind the tractor, picking up roots. It's all hot and sweaty. And Uncle Doc walks out of the swamp. So my grandfather parks the tractor, takes the water jug off the tractor, pours the water out, and follows him into the swamp. And my dad was hot and thirsty, but when my grandfather came back, he said he wouldn't let him have any more water for the rest of the day. So I think we um, know why. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he would have been feeling a lot worse. That's right. <laughs> had he had some of that water. Uh, well, those stories are fantastic. And longtime listeners of uh, Crime Capsule will know that we have a very soft spot in our heart for bootleggers and for folks who have pursued the uh, the dark arts of the distilleries. Um, in uh, in the course of American history, we did a, a small series uh, about a year ago on uh, the Dixie Mafia, of which you know moonshine was a major part of their various activities around around the South. And anytime it comes up, we are just overjoyed. So we appreciate it. Um, this this lens onto the Carolinian history thereof. So. Let us switch gears here and start looking at this trial. Now, I am so curious, um, Michael. Last week, we had Lieutenant Rita Schuler as our guest, uh, a crime capsule veteran and a longtime forensic investigator with SLED, now retired. And Rita noted that in working in law enforcement in and around Walterboro and the sur- surrounding counties, as you know, the Murdochs were omnipresent. They just went back as far as she could remember. They predated you know, her tenure in law enforcement. And she noted that within SLED, she was able to resist their influence. But I was curious, from your perspective, what were the challenges on the other side of the line, so to speak, in journalism? What were the challenges in reporting on them and their power structure uh, sort of woven all throughout the area? Well, that's a, that's a good question. To touch on uh, Miss Rita's comment first, um, and I've, I've read one of her books. She's a, a great, great author. Um, I think within the 14th Circuit, and the 14th Judicial Circuit is five counties. It's Hampton, Allendale, Colleton, Jasper, and Beaufort. And these counties couldn't be any more different. You've got the resort islands of Hilton Head or in Beaufort County, and you've got backwood swamps in, in Hampton, Allendale, and Colleton. Uh, so within the 14th Circuit, the Murdochs were well-known and, and, you know, for a time, I'm not going to use the word all-powerful, but for the time, very prominent, very powerful, very well-connected. But outside of the 14th Circuit, when you get to the state level with SLED and uh, state politics, they did not so much. Uh, a lot of people outside the 14th Circuit had never even heard of these people, um, which was surprising to me because everybody in, the, in, the, in our area knows who the Murdochs are. But outside the 14th Circuit, people in Columbia and people in the upstate were like, who the heck are these people? So that would explain the lack of influence and connection in SLED. Um, as far as journalistically, before 2015, um, you know, let's look at the Murdochs pre-Stephen Smith and after Stephen Smith. Okay. I covered them throughout from 2004 on, and prior to 2015, it was all, uh, courtroom cases and accolades and, you know, Murdoch's donated this and Murdoch's won this award. And, and <clears throat> I was not a close friend, but I was often invited to their social events. Uh, Alex's father, Randolph, would have what they called Third Thursday, which basically every third Thursday of the month, all of his 
cronies, uh, local mayor, police, uh, sheriff, whoever would be invited to his man cave in the, in the backyard at Alameda, and they'd fry fish or they'd have barbecue or whatever. And as editor of the paper, you know, I guess I was somebody they considered to be somebody, I guess. So they invited me, and I, I attended a couple of the events. I attended a couple of dove shoots and shot birds with, with John Marvin and, and, and members of the family. And it it was more of a, um, it, it was social, but it was also, you know, a, a work kind of thing. Because I was editor of the paper, I was invited. We weren't close friends. Then after Stephen Smith, with the rumors about a possible Murdoch connection, which we still don't know for a fact, it, it is uh, certainly not confirmed, uh, things changed. There was also another scandal involving a local uh, coach that, as um, Alex's mother was on the school board, there were rumors that they 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 kind of ousted this well-loved local coach and uh, put in somebody that that they liked and they wanted. And that was a whole lesser, much lesser controversy. But after 2015, I kind of cut social ties with the Murdochs. If I was invited to to if Randolph was getting an award, for example, 2018, he was awarded the Order of the Palmetto at the Hampton County Courthouse. Well, I was there and I covered that. But the same year, I was invited to come to his house to, to for a cookout or whatever. Well, I declined those invitations. So I began to distance myself. And bottom line, as a, before all of this, I was a journalist operating in um let's just say that i reported the good along with the bad but i was dealing with a family of lawyers so whenever i reported the bad i made dang sure i had all my ducks in a row i had my facts my documents my sources confirmed all of that before i i uh i did my job but i did my job the whole time if there was a um controversy involving the Murdochs, we reported on it. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.
then my brother was a uh, reporter for nearly a decade, actually over a decade uh, before he switched careers. And, you know, from time to time, he would mention folks who would extend invitations that, you know, on paper, they were above board, but there was always an undercurrent. You know, there's always an undercurrent of who who can we get on our side? Who can we cultivate a little little fella feeling or a little sympathy with? You know, uh, I think that's something we have to be very wary of. So let me ask you this. What was your first indication that something was truly amiss? Was it the boat crash or was it something else? Well, we had always heard rumors about uh, Buster Murdoch. You know, keep in mind, Buster... He retired in the 80s. I don't have the exact year in front of me. It might have been 86, something like that. Um, but so he retired years before I came to work for the newspaper. And I, I guess I was maybe 10 years old at the time when he retired. But I heard my father and my grandfather talk about him. And they talked about, um, you know, just to quote and paraphrase my, my family and my ancestors, you know, he was a crook. He was a snake in the grass is what... Um, you know, local common people uh, would say about him. It was known that he was, you know, involved in um, with bootleggers and and different um, different uh, controversies. And we can talk about that. I go into great detail about all of those in both books. Um, there was a whole uh, moonshine conspiracy where he went to federal court, and that's that's in uh, Wicked Hampton County. That's in Fall of House of Murdoch, and it's very fascinating. But <clears throat> Buster was allegedly corrupt, but he was slick. He always got away with everything. He retired with honor from his job, well thought of. But people in Hampton County always knew there was something kind of shady about old Buster. Then Randolph came along, Randolph III, his son, and he was a lot cleaner. He, he still had a few controversies here and there. Um... But he was a lot cleaner than than his old man, and the Murdochs were mostly, you know, we knew about the history of the law firm. We knew the law firm was instrumental in uh, us not getting a lot of industry and uh, Walmart not coming to our town and things of that nature. We could talk about all that later if you'd like, but we knew locals knew the negative side of the Murdochs, but. You know how when you live in the forest, you know, you, you say you can't see the forest with the trees? Well, we had accepted all of this. And it wasn't a story to us anymore. It was just one of our dirty secrets. Nothing you can really do about it. And and as a whole, the Murdochs were mostly respected. And uh, everybody loved Randolph III, Alex's father. He was a, he was a nice guy. Uh, you know, he was charming, quick with a joke or a story. If you spent five minutes with Randolph Murdoch III, you know, you're like, you know, this is a great guy. I love him. And about 2015, to, to, to answer your question, is when we started getting rumors that this, you know, the Murdochs, in particular the younger generations, that something wasn't right. You know, it's funny. We, we often think about the... Uh, charisma of evil right and sometimes the worst people are the ones who can talk a worm out of its hole as they say um let me ask you this where were you when you heard the news that paul and maggie 
had been killed. Were you in the newsroom uh, that that night of June 7th, I believe it was, 2021, or were you kind of out and about? This happened about 2 o'clock on a Sunday morning, um, and it happened in another county. So, obviously, I wasn't the first. Um, you know, a lot of the major events, the homicides happened one county north of us, uh, you know, just right across the Hampton County line. The boat crash happened in Beaufort County, one county east to the coast. So obviously I wasn't the first at the scene. I wasn't the first to break the story. So it was early that morning, um, either before I came into the office Monday morning or once I walked in and, uh, you know, that's when I heard about it. And that's when I began working on the story. By then, the local reporters in Beaufort, the Beaufort Gazette, the Island Packet, this was in their backyard. So they were on the scene. They were they were breaking the story, and they did a great job. But that was pretty much first thing Monday morning. I walked in, and my first thought was, you know, oh my God, a local girl is missing in the water. And my second thought was, oh my God, a Murdoch is involved, and we know what type of story that has become. What was the reaction inside the newsroom at the Hampton County Guardian. I mean, were y'all just action stations? You know, we're taking this, we're running with it to the best that we can, you know, but you other, you still have other news to report. I mean, just because this has happened, you can't shut down your news gathering operations in other domains, can you? Well, that's, that's kind of a funny, when you said the newsroom, when Stephen Smith died in 2015, we were a newsroom of two. Myself as editor of the paper, and I had one reporter. And I think I wrote the initial story when Stephen's body was found. And then in November, my reporter Matt Popovich at the time, he, I, I at my instruction, he wrote, uh, he interviewed Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, um, wrote a couple of uh, heart-tugging stories that we published in the Thanksgiving edition of that year, saying, you know. Uh, we think this is a hate crime, a prominent family's involved. If you know something, please come forward. So, and I, meanwhile, I was tasked with running the entire paper. If you know anything about a small weekly newspaper? Uh, <laughs> I do uh, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do everything. I was yep. writing stories. I was uh, helping run, I was running the advertising department. I was laying in, out and designing the newspaper. Uh, it's a, the driver called in sick. I had to deliver the dang paper. So that was, that was 2015. And by the time the boat crash happened, I was a newsroom of one. So, um, you know, the newsroom reaction that you might've had in the Beaufort newsroom, where you've got a bunch of people going around, Oh, well, let's brainstorm about what, what, how are we, how are we going to cover this? Who are the Murdochs? Well, it was just pretty much me and, and one guy in a big room by myself in Hampton County going, Oh my God, what am I going to do with this story? The Murdochs are involved, but we covered it. We, we, we got on top of it. We covered it. I think the biggest thing, not newsroom reaction, but community reaction. I think, um, that's, that's what, where we should look early on. These are two families. Well, everybody on that boat, there were six passengers on that boat. Five of them were from Hampton County. One of them was from Jasper or Buford, I think. So you got five Hampton County families involved. They're all friends. They all hang out. They all know each other. And now one of them's dead. 
So you've got families and friends that are like torn apart. You know, we were best buddies last week, but you know, now you killed my daughter or your son killed my daughter or, you know, you're not taking responsibility for this, whatever. It, it ripped families apart, friends apart. And in a sense, it began creating a rift in the Hampton County community of those who loved and supported the Murdoch family and those who felt that they had got away with too much abuse of power and privilege for too long. You know, one of the things that Rita shared with us uh, when she came back into the studio, uh, you know, last week was she said that when SLED started saying after, you know, Paul and Maggie had been killed, that they did not believe that there was a threat to the public, um, you know, her kind of spider sense started tingling, <laughs> right? And a um, little alarm bell went off there suggesting that law enforcement either knew who did it or they had a good enough idea to start. Uh, w was that alarm bell immediately ringing in your mind, too? I mean, you said, you know, Murdoch might be involved, but did you have a really strong suspicion right up front that this was something's going on on the inside here? That's a good question. My first thought, and I think a lot of people, their first thought was not that the father of the family did it. My first thought, everyone's first thought was, this has to be something related to the boat crash. We were all thinking, this is backwoods justice. Somebody connected to one of those families on that boat crash, more than likely Mallory Beach, you know, um, they've decided that justice is not going to be served, that Paul Murdoch, the son of a lawyer, the grandson of a solicitor, is not going to be held accountable. Justice is not going to be served, so we're going to take justice in, into our own hands. And, uh, I, and, and as, as we sat through the trial and as we heard the testimony and saw the evidence, that's exactly what Alex Murdoch wanted everyone to think. The, we, can, we can go into the trial a, a, a bit later, but from the very moment police arrived on the scene, he was telling them, hey, I, you know, there was a boat case, and, and I think that uh, somebody connected to this boat crash had something to do with it, and Paul's been getting threats, and he wanted to paint that picture. He wanted that, that $10 million lawsuit to go away. He wanted the world to look at him as the victim of vigilantes, and so, yeah, that's that's the web that Alex Murdoch was trying to spin now that we've we've seen and heard the details of the trial. And that's what everybody was thinking. That's what certainly what I was thinking. I didn't I mean, do I think that Mallory's father or mother or somebody, you know, pulled a trigger? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying everybody's thought was somehow this has to be connected to the boat crash, whether it be a friend, a family member or maybe some a uh, vindictive member of the community who's just been reading the news and like, you know what, if the criminal justice system isn't going to do it, I'm going to do it. When I heard the statement that the public was not in danger, I didn't put a whole lot of, you know, uh, speculation in it. I don't think necessarily that police, they may have had a slight suspicion about Alex up front, but basically I think they wanted to let the community know that we're not, we don't, this happened on Monday night, we don't expect somebody else to get killed on Tuesday night. We don't think that somebody's just going to go around randomly kill people. We think this was a targeted hit. So whether they thought it was involved in the boat crash 
or whether they thought it, it was uh, the work of Alex Murdoch. Basically, they didn't think this was a random thing. They thought it was a very targeted thing. And that's why they put this statement out, which has come back to haunt them. It's been questioned during the trial. It's been analyzed to death. But basically, they wanted to let people know, hey, we'll work in this case, but you don't have to worry about somebody coming to, to your house tonight or the next night and killing you. And I think they should have just chosen their words a little more carefully. You know, it's funny because it does actually take us back to what you call in your book, you know, Wicked Hampton County, you call the wild, the wild east, right? I mean, here you do have the presumption or the specter, uh, the kind of echo of those honor killings, vendetta killings, you know, if that as an idea is still in the water in um, Hampton County and the five county area, the 14th circuit and so forth, then it's a, it's a lot more sort of plausible up front if there's a context for that kind of belief, isn't there? Yeah, I think, you know, the words, I may have even used these words in one of my stories was, you know, backwoods justice. Um, well, let me ask you this. Backwoods justice, how likely was it, did you think, back in June 2021, that we would end up where we were in January 2023 with Alex sitting in the defendant's chair because even now with as many people as he was prosecuting on the other side of that line the irony is it's just almost too much isn't it well I think that uh, from the night of the killings until about um, until Labor Day weekend I think pretty much most people thought that this was in some way connected to the boat crash then when the first criminal allegations started coming out about Alex, that he had been stealing money from his law firm, he was forced to resign, he admitted this drug addiction, he pulled off this crazy stunt beside the road, that's when the whole narrative changed. That's when the suspicion changed. My mind was probably just like everyone else in the low country, everyone else following this story, Okay, wait a minute. You know, Alex has been doing some shady stuff. You know, you know what they say, the husband is always a suspect or the spouse is always a suspect. Well, at that moment, he went from being a victim in everyone's eyes to being a suspect. You know, I think testimony at the trial proved that uh Sled had him as a suspect by the by the end of June, July, they were, uh, or maybe even the first week. I'd have to go back and review all the notes, but they were inconsistencies that they noticed uh, right away, probably responding on the ground. He was telling them, he told 911 and he told police that uh, he checked the bodies for a pulse and tried to roll them over, but there was no blood on him. So there was probably a little suspicion uh, early on by law enforcement, but he wasn't a full-on suspect, and the only suspect for SLED until August 11th when they did this third interview with him. And But keep in mind, all of this is hush-hush from the community. He's, he's a suspect for SLED and in this inner circle, but the public at large, you know, doesn't know the inner workings of the investigation and you know you might read a story where uh it's been leaked out that he's a person of interest but for the most part i think people still considered him the victim of a crime and it was some way connected to the boat crash well 
August, September, that began to change, and he was, you know, he was primarily seen by everybody as a suspect, and all of these, every every criminal charge, every crime, every allegation that, that rolled out, it just deepened that that notion. We will get into the meat of the trial next week. Thank you so much, Michael, for setting the stage for us up front. Uh, that's a lot, and we are uh, grateful for your insight uh, on so many levels. So we will come back next week with the view from inside the courtroom. Thank you again. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks, as always, for listening. Our guest has been Michael DeWitt, Jr., author of Wicked Hampton County, forthcoming soon from the History Press. Pre-orders are now available at all major booksellers. Tune in next week for the second part of our conversation for the insights on this case that you won't get anywhere else. Thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.